Today I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll be reading for you and preaching for you once again, um, verses 1 through 6. This is the second part of a sermon that started last week, and it's a bit of a recap or maybe even somewhat of a revised version of the first as well. So hear now the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this instruction, but we also thank you for the implicit reality that Jesus Christ has accomplished all these things on our behalf. And so as we hear your word and hear it preached, We pray that by the power of your word and Holy Spirit, that it would transform us and embolden us and equip us to reflect Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished in his kingdom and all that we do. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. We have a love-hate relationship with rules and lists. Often there are two parts of our nature at war within us. By our design and the image that we bear, we are creatures of order and seek structure, and therefore an innate desire for successful function and completion of our endeavors. And by the same means, we are creatures of cognitive reasoning and creativity that are not programmed just to react to commands and formulas. By design, all these attributes seem to be a wonderful recipe, but then enters the corruption of sin. And the deception of sin is that we can have full autonomy and independence while not just borrowing from God, but inevitably and maybe even unconsciously seeking to steal from God. But we look really ridiculous doing it. Even if we attempt to take this rebellious reasoning to the nth degree and declare, I don't have rules and there is no absolute authority or truth, we are making an immediate contradiction by creating an absolute rule and attempting to establish ourselves as the absolute authority 
while we're sitting on a pile of God's stuff. We start out like this as little children, declaring our independence and refusing to do this or that while we are confined by a crib that our parents purchased at Walmart. It might be slightly annoying, but also slightly amusing to watch this theater at the beginning, but we know that unchecked, it turns into a ridiculous and very destructive monster. The irony of this monster is that it rarely roams the earth randomly and merely chaotically, but instead it subjects itself to a thousand rules and regulations. The more it seeks autonomy from God, the more rules this monster makes. And the monster is not content to just have rules for itself, but it must impose these rules in order upon all that it seeks to reign. Because this monster does not just seek independence and autonomy, but it seeks its very own kingdom. Recently, we heard about a few of the pages of the manifesto of the Nashville mass murderer that happened at the Covenant Presbyterian Christian School. We see that the critical theory mood of the day and is conclusive that at least a part of the motive in this mass murder was centered in part on white privilege by a confused woman who, by their own definitions, is the face of white privilege. It doesn't make sense. This one who was showing great hate to the point of killing little children was the very image of the thing that she hated. We know from the things that she believed and the things that she had proclaimed that she had a thousand rules of what she saw to be moral living and to be righteousness, to be what is good and what is wrong. But then the weight of a thousand rules of foolish reasoning in this woke morality eventually imploded and collapsed upon itself. Proverbs 8.36 says, All who hate God love death. It might be a fairly morbid beginning to this particular passage. You may be thinking, why is he going down this road? But I want to be very careful. I want to caution us today as we look at this particular passage that as we see here, what looks like to be a set of rules. It looks like very quick. And as I mentioned in last week's sermon, it's even in the Greek, it's even more brief than what we see here in the English. They're very quick bullet points of things that we are to do. So is our hope a better set of rules in light of this monster that I speak of? Just because it's a set of rules prescribed and communicated by the creator himself, is it really all about rules? And that if we follow these particular rules, then everything is going to be okay. I want to remind us the context of this whole sermon of the book of Hebrews. It is easy to come to chapter 13, and when we see this very distinctively different type of writing compared to everything else that we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews, to forget what precedes this particular chapter. 
This is actually a closing chapter. It is bringing together and summarizing everything that we've been hearing in the first 12 chapters. And now we're seeing it become applicable in our very own actions. But we cannot forget the central message of everything we see preceding it in Hebrews 1 through chapter 12. We don't have to go back very far, but just a few verses back to remember that it says in Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all. And then rewinding a little bit more, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The context of this particular list of instructions is in light of this great and lofty reality of what we have come to as his people, to the reality of Christ's reign over his kingdom. There is no debate about whose kingdom is going to win. Jesus has already accomplished victory of his kingdom. And that is the backdrop of everything that we see here. We see Jesus sitting on the throne, and then we get to chapter 13. We must understand that it is about a priest king and his kingdom, and that we are citizens of the kingdom. If we begin to take this particular chapter and we look and say, okay, here is a simple list of rules. And if we live by these particular rules, and then we will please God and we will be moral and we'll be good people. Now, there is an element of that that is true, that if we do what God says, that there will be good things because of it. And if we could possibly obey all of the law of God, then yes, we could be righteous in of ourselves. But that would go very much against the very point of the book of Hebrews. Remember that this book, this letter, this sermon was written to Hebrew Christians to encourage them, but to highlight the superiority of Jesus Christ and to caution them from going to other things that were not Jesus as their hope. As they face the persecution and the mistreatment of being those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, it was to encourage them to keep holding on to Jesus. And so we must keep that message in our mind as we go to each one of these particular instructions. We must look at Jesus as we approach these things. Or we will find ourselves frustrated, and failures of not being able to actually fulfill these things. It is by Jesus Christ that not only are we empowered to do these things, but it is by his faithfulness that we even have access to not only understanding, but actually to delight to do these things. It is by his redemptive work that we are able to read these things in a different light, than just hearing the law of God condemn us for our unrighteousness. But we can actually read each one of these instructions with thanksgiving 
that we can reflect Jesus Christ in our life. We also need to remember what I have highlighted in multiple chapters are, I think, the three-point focuses of the whole passage, one, two, or the whole book. It is to, that we are to draw near to Jesus Christ. As we see him inside of the Holy of Holies, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, we are to draw near to Jesus, knowing that he has accomplished the breaking down the barrier between God and man. That he has in the flesh now come before the Father and is sitting there having his name cover our names, his blood cover our lives, and saying to the Father that we are his justified brothers. So we are to draw near to the reality of what Jesus is in that Holy of Holies. And I have mentioned before, is that as we are standing in the threshold, we know that we are not all the way in, but it's the already but not yet. As we see this reality, we stand at the threshold hearing Jesus intercede for us, saying, justified, justified. We are to hold fast this confession without wavering. As we remember this reality of what Jesus has accomplished, we are to hold fast to that and to live our lives, seeking to see our lives transformed by the reality of Jesus Christ accomplishing this work. And then lastly, we are to gather together to stir up, to love and to serve one another So that his name, his kingdom, will not only be proclaimed, but that it would be furthered in this world. We are called in all of this to go into rest into Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these particular instructions in these six verses, I want us to look at how Jesus has accomplished these things already for us. Knowing that apart from Jesus' work and what he has done in his redemption, we would not be able to, again, accomplish these things. First of all, I want us to remember that Jesus is our great big brother. This is something we see in the book of Hebrews. We see, secondly, that Jesus is the hospitable stranger. And then we see that Jesus became the mistreated prisoner. And then maybe above all, we see that Jesus himself is the faithful husband of his bride. And then lastly, to remember that Jesus is the benevolent beneficiary benefactor. Sorry, I know we just got to throw in those multiple letters like that. But I think that the sense of Hebrew, the book of Hebrews has that kind of thing. If you remember when I first started preaching on Hebrews, that, that Jesus was the, the supremest. <laughs> he was the, the biggest. Everything was trying to IEST to everything, that he was better than all of the things that they would have known that had anything to do with the revelation of God, that Jesus is the most bestest, supremest of them all. To, where, to the point where it almost seems ridiculous how, how much higher can we get? And even that falls short. But yes, Jesus is the benevolent beneficiary benefactor. And I'll explain that a little more as we go along. So first of all, verse 1, 
Let brotherly love continue. Now, I know I touched on some of these things last week, but I'm going to go back through. I think it's good to look at all of these things and these five particular roles that Jesus has put himself in on our behalf. And so that as we hear these things being instructions to us, that we first see Jesus fulfilling these things. Jesus is our great big brother. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 2, we'll go through and we'll see how basically these instructions are echoing the things that we've already been taught previously in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil, and the deliverer all the and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make payment propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are taught in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great big brother. And because the work that he did was on behalf of his love for his brothers, we see now this instruction that let brotherly love continue, that what he's actually saying is not so much the love that you have already been showing, but let the brotherly love of Jesus Christ continue in you. That as we are reminded of Jesus' great love for his brothers, we are now to live that out in reflection of what his love is for us to each other and to the world. Then secondly, in verse 2, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now we know that we are reminded of Genesis chapter 18 and also Matthew 25. We see that Abraham, when he was entertaining the Lord and the two others, that we know that the Lord was there with him. And though there was an uncertainty of exactly who these people were, that we know that the Lord was amongst them as he showed this hospitality to them as these were going to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Matthew 25, in the parable of the king, he explains to his disciples that he 
remembers when they gave to him and served him as a stranger, as a prisoner, when he was hungry, and they were confused, and they were like, when did we do this thing? And he says, whenever you did unto the least of these, you did unto me. We see that in this particular life that we are called to do, that Jesus is the stranger. But when we look at the full context of the book of Hebrews, we see him with his tabernacle, particularly that he has laid forth in chapter nine, this place of hospitality so that we may dwell with him. Turn to your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. It says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus becomes the stranger and becomes the sacrifice so that he may watch us to participate amongst the Father, amongst his fellowship that he has with the Father. He's taking both, both roles. He is the just and the justifier. He is the one there with the Father in heaven that has prepared a place so that his people may come and dwell with him. But because of our defilement from sin and corruption, we cannot get there. So he becomes the stranger and the sacrifice so that we may come in clean and be able to dwell with him. He is the hospitable stranger. He takes on both roles because we are not righteous in of ourselves. We cannot enter, but we cannot even by our own selves die for our own sins to a place where we can be in his presence. Jesus is the hospitable stranger. Then next in verse 3, it says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. It's an interesting thing if you think about it, that when we see these instructions, when we think about how the Lord lays forth different commandments, but if we think about it in context of what I'm saying, that this is a summarization of the things that Jesus has accomplished, it begins to make sense. We know that Jesus is the mistreated prisoner. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There we were instructed in chapter 12 that we must consider what Jesus has accomplished so that when we are trying to accomplish these instructions that there can be fulfillment of them. That we're actually reflecting his work. We cannot do this without Jesus. We cannot do this without the consideration of what he has already accomplished on our behalf. And then we also are reminded in this particular passage, it's in the middle, and you're thinking, well, so he's talking about gel ministry in the middle of this? 
Yes, but it's more than that. This is the essence of the prophecy of what he has come to do. He has come to release the captives. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when he begins his ministry, he proclaims in the temple, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As he reads the book of Isaiah in the beginning of his ministry, one of the central components of everything that he's doing is that he's going to free us from our captivity and slavery. And he can only do it if he becomes the mistreated prisoner. And so, yes, in essence of our citizenship, in this kingdom is to have that same posture. We are the body of Christ and we are to take on the same central focus of ministry that he had when he came to redeem us. Jesus is the mistreated prisoner. Then now, finally getting to the part that I didn't get to last week, verse four of chapter 13 Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. When you go through the scriptures from Old and New Testament, it is very interesting how much God talks about sexual immorality and adultery. And you can kind of deduce that you think, well, maybe, maybe people are just full of wickedness in their adultery. And the sexual morality must be a problem. I mean, if you can imagine as we look at it, you know, if we're trying to study it as we were, if we were removed from being humans on this planet, we're looking, man, these people must just be really messed up with that. But I think what's important for us to, is to remember is the whole picture of who Christ is and what his redemptive posture is toward his people. Jesus is our husband. The whole story of the scriptures from the beginning of the end is a love story about the marriage of Jesus Christ and his bride. And everything we do that reflects a different message about that particular story is a lie. Whenever we twist it and pervert it, We pervert his story. We pervert his purposes. And then as we begin to understand that in the fullness of his scripture, we realize why it says here in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. The actual Greek there has got a twofold kind of meaning to it, among all and above all. It means that the institution of marriage is the most important thing in the mind of Jesus Christ. Not so much your particular marriages is the most important thing, but his marriage is the most important thing. And therefore our marriages and the institution of marriage is a very important thing. In fact, the Bible teaches us that it should be held among honor, be held in honor among all. That means all people are to be captivated by this love story. Whether you're single, whether you're a child, 
whether you're a widow or a widower, whether you're married for 50 years. You are to look at this institution to be a a cherished institution. Because this is the institution of the whole story that we find in Scripture. This is the posture of God toward his people. And God despises that story to be perverted and twisted. And there's so many ways that Satan tempts us and distracts us from one hand of just making light jokes about it all the time, the whole ball and chain mindset. I'm not saying that every little humorous component that we have of referencing our spouses and the interesting quirks that we have with one another. I mean, we're human. It's sometimes in the marriage we see these unique things where we're different. It's amazing that it even works sometimes. And yet it, it, there's, there's fun in it. There's humor in it. But you have to admit that the posture of our culture, we, we like to just make it seem like a big joke. And then if we're not doing that, we're just right out dismantling it, discarding it. And it's a constant fight. It's a constant fight for us to hold this up because Satan is going to go after that. And so therefore, when we look at this instruction in the book of Hebrews, let marriage be held in honor among all. One, it should teach us that every single one of us need to stop and pay attention. It doesn't mean like, well, I'm only five, I'm only ten, or I'm single and I'm not, I don't think I'm ever going to be married. It doesn't, no, every one of us are to pay attention to this, and we are to be living our lives in a way knowing that this is a very important story that we're telling here. And so when we see other brothers and sisters that are married together, We are to encourage them in their marriages. We are to do things to help protect their marriages, even when it's not our own marriage. And that applies to both single and married alike. When we go to weddings, it should be a big deal to us. We should celebrate this. This isn't just some idea that we came up with, some kind of institution of the way two people of the opposite sex are able to to get along and to live a life together so that we can just procreate. But it's, a, it's a, a message and proclamation about Jesus Christ. And so we should hold it with tremendous honor. And we should protect it. We should try to protect it in every way we can from how we think, what we see, what we say, and most certainly what we do in our relationships with one another particularly for those who are single. We often think that we can take liberties and we do things to set our mind the wrong way about marriage early on in life. I know ever since I was a kid, just the kind of joking and the kind of talking that I heard about marriage and about the opposite sex that formed this idea about marriage that was so much against what the Scripture teaches And I am still haunted by those things to this day. It still impacts my thinking and my speaking and my own humor, my own view of my own life and my view of Jesus Christ and the church. Can you see how important this is to the Lord 
and why it should be important to us. When we go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5, when we're talking about Moses, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Jesus is the faithful husband. He is faithful for his household. We are his household. We are his bride. We are the children of God, but we are the bride of Jesus Christ. And his faithfulness impacts our faithfulness. We cannot be faithful in our marriages if we're not focusing on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We must remember our faithful husbands. Husband, sorry. And then we see in a beautiful but also somewhat confusing, we don't even know for sure what Paul's always talking about. He has to explain himself and it, it merges this institution of marriage that we have here on earth with this institution of the marriage of Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 1 through 5 and 23 through 33, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as we are considering this great kingdom and the great lofty reality of what Jesus has become, we are to be imitators. This is why he has given, this is why we have this instruction in the book of Hebrews to let marriage be held in such honor and to protect it so much because we are being imitators of God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Isn't that interesting? He goes from telling us to be imitators of God. He goes from talking about how Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us uh, for us as a sacrifice to God and then immediately deals with sexual immorality because it's so important to him. The institution of marriage is so important to him. This love story that he is telling and showing and living is so important to him. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. I mean, we had friends over last Sunday, and I told a joke, and my wife just flat out said, it's not funny. And after I thought about it, I'm like, you know, it really isn't that funny. Which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. I mean, Think about the conversations that you hear about different marriages. Do we hear more people talking about how thankful they are for their spouses? Or do we hear more people talking about the quirkiness and the weirdness and the conflict of marriage? Our conversation should be constantly full of thanksgiving. I mean, at minimum, that should, that, there should be more thanksgiving than, than silly jokes. I mean, wouldn't you say that's at least a, a, a low bar there? <laughs> For us to, to focus on. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We cannot be those who are content to live in adultery, in idolatry, 
in sexual immorality. We know that God's people fall into sexual immorality. Thankfulness, thankfully, we have Psalm 51 to show us that the right response to that is to go to God in repentance. And again, trusting in the faithful husband, Jesus Christ. We cannot continue to live that way, worshiping ourselves, because he demands that we worship him. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. Remember the tabernacle again. The the whole context of what we see in the Hebrews is that Jesus is with the Father in the Holy of the Holies. That the tabernacle was an image of that. And we see that Jesus has washed his bride so that his bride may enter into that holy place with him. His marriage is what does that for us. It is our marriage with Christ that allows us to go from the threshold and on in because our name is his name. We have married Jesus and now we bear the name of Jesus Christ. And we are one with his body. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife and himself and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. We cannot look at this particular passage as just this is the way to have a good marriage. This is a way to get along. This is the way we are to be postured with ourselves. Husbands, love your wives and wives submit to your husbands. And that's it. Let's go with it. No, he's, he's putting in there and he's interwoving it and he's saying Jesus is the faithful husband. And it's only able to be accomplished by him. And therefore, reflect that. Be imitators of our husband in your own marriage. Or in how you view the marriages of other people. Cherish those marriages of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Protect them. Encourage them. Pray for them. And then lastly... Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, it's interesting. When I think about my own life, I, can, I see the scriptures and I think, okay, I... I believe 
that Jesus is God, that he is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, and that he came and he lived and he lived a perfect and holy life, and that he died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he is making intercession for me. But it doesn't take but just one thing breaking down in my house, <laughs> or a car not working, or an appliance, or a string of appliances, or a bunch of bills that come in, or things that be unsettled with employment, or thinking about the future and wondering if that's going to, when we're going to be able to afford things, or am I going to be able to pay for this? Am I going to do this? Am I, going to, am I, am I, am I, am I, am I going to be able to do this? And then I start doubting whether God's going to come through. And I start getting nervous and I get anxious. And it's inconsistent, I know, and it doesn't make any sense that I would begin to wring my hands and lose sleep and, and, and worry about. And then I started trying to think, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe if I maneuver myself in this way, or maybe if I you know, posture myself in a certain way at work, or maybe if we have this kind of strategy in the church, we can make sure we can get enough people to come in and you know, pay tithes. And we can you know, and I start worrying about how all that's going to come together and how it's all going to work so that I can be able to provide food on the table. And, and God tells me here, he says, you're... Thinking about this too much. He doesn't tell us that we can just lay back and not work. I mean, he tells us to work. And he, and, he, and he actually emerges, and I'll read a passage here in a minute. He brings all that together. But we're not to be obsessed by it. We're to be content and to remember the promises of what he has said. We need to remember Jesus. We need to remember what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus has promised so that when we encounter those kind of circumstances, that it, our whole theology doesn't fall apart all of a sudden. And our whole posture toward God and toward each other doesn't freak out. We see that next to sexual immorality, one of the biggest things that causes such strain and pain and destruction in a family is stress about money. It's a destroyer. Now, there's ways to fall off of that horse on the other side and become lazy and idle, and there's instruction against that as well. But no matter how hard we work, we'll never be able to achieve perfect security for ourselves. In Hebrews chapter 2, we are reminded by God in verse 16. I've already read this. It says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are reminded that God's posture toward us, our Savior's posture toward us, him coming in the flesh and becoming poor, is so that he can go through this temptation and everything and remind us that he helps us. Hebrews 9, chapter, 15, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. The very centerpiece of what he has accomplished on the cross and resurrection guarantees for us the eternal inheritance of the king of all creation. In short, he's already promised to give it all to us. Everything. Everything that belongs to him, he is going to give to us, including his glory, which is crazy. So if you've already been given a guarantee that you have been given everything in Christ, what do we need to worry about? List one thing. List one thing that we need to worry about when it comes to our provision. When everything is already, our name is on it. Go, go look in the files. Look at the deed. Look at the bank account. Look at everything that Jesus owns. Our name is his name now. And it's right there. There's nothing for us to be anxious about. This is wisdom. This is wisdom for those who are in the Lord. Proverbs 8, 18 through 21 Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries. Speaking in the context of wisdom that was there with the Lord from the beginning, who was with the Lord from the beginning? The Son. He is the embodiment of wisdom. He guarantees us his inheritance. Proverbs 10, 3 through 5, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, and he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This prudent son is Jesus Christ because he did the work necessary to guarantee that fruit, that payment, that inheritance for us. How do we know? How can we know this is true for us? How can we know that he is this benevolent beneficiary benefactor? If you get it now, the beneficiary, he's the beneficiary of everything that the father has promised. And he is the benefactor, meaning he gives it to us. He's won it for us and promises it to us. But how can we know? How can we know for sure that he's going to take care of us? I'm going to close with Romans chapter 8 here. Turn to your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And thanks to my brother, Pastor Damon, he honed in on this. And I'm never going to forget Romans 8.32. I pray <laughs> throughout my life. He said, number 32, number 32, over and over again. I hope I can remember the chapter, but I, I'll know at least it's verse 32. Romans 8 is likely one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible. And starting with verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about two things there. Think of what he paid. Jesus gave his only son. He paid to guarantee us that he loves us. He gave his son to receive his wrath. And when he paid that, when he gave that, what does he accomplish for us? What does it say in the passage? You can answer. What does he accomplish? And what I just read. <laughs> in verse 32. <laughs> what do we get for what the father paid for? All things, thank you. So we get everything. He pays and gives everything to us. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the Father did not spare his own son, and because he paid for our sins with his own son. He will graciously give us all things. He has said throughout all of the scriptures to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so when we look at Jesus, when we look at what the Father gave to secure for us and what Jesus did to secure for us an eternal inheritance, we can now confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is one of the reasons why we think it might be Paul that wrote this. But all of the apostles began to see this in time. And may it be that you will see this more and more in time as these words resonate and state with you and echo and embolden you and encourage you and comfort you if anything, remember Romans 8, 32. Number 32. Number 32. He did not spare his own son. And that is why we are here this day. 